This is The Guardian. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As Westminster mourns the death of Sir David Amos, shocked MPs wonder how to move forward safely. I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. The passing of 72 hours has done little to numb the shock and sadness we all felt when we heard of the tragic and senseless death of Sir David Amos. Last Friday, Sir David Amos, a Tory MP for 38 of his 69 years, was stabbed to death in broad daylight while holding his constituency surgery in an Essex church. Amos's death is the second in five years and had many remembering the murder of Labour MP Joe Cox in 2016. On Monday, MPs across the political divide paid emotional tributes in the House of Commons, recounting fun anecdotes about a man who once rode a horse through his constituency after being knighted. Sir David was taken from us in a contemptible act of violence, striking at the core of what it is to be a member of this House. There's also anger and a lot of fear among MPs. I've spoken to several who say their families are at breaking point over worry for their safety. Many MPs see it as their duty to meet constituents face-to-face. It makes them accessible, but also more vulnerable. So how can they move forward without fearing for their lives? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, let's look at MPs' security measures and how this could have happened. I'm joined by Dan Saber, The Guardian's Defence and Security Editor. Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, First of all, just bring us up to speed with where we are on the case. What do we know about what happened? What do we understand about why it happened? So Ali Harby Ali, the 25-year-old who's been held by police, who's arrested at the crime scene. Uh, He's been held on suspicion of murder since last Friday lunchtime. Uh, He's still being questioned by police uh, under terrorism charges. And they've got until Friday to decide whether they're going to charge him or not. So that's where we are in terms of the suspect. In terms of the investigation, as I said earlier, the designation has been made that it's terrorism shortly after he was arrested. But we'll wait and see for a final determination when the charges come. Obviously, this terrible act, you know, there's lots of questions it raises about lots of things about politics, about MP safety, about the way that we kind of conduct political debate. And, you know, probably most specifically, it will also raise questions about, you know, radicalisation, if that is indeed, you know, what happened. It has emerged that the suspect, Ali Harbi Ali, was, was known to the prevent 
de-radicalisation programme and also we believe took part in the, the programme that's kind of up a gear from that, the channel programme. And Tell us a bit about that and, and the controversies around it. Yeah, so, you know, Prevent is the Home Office's uh, premier, if you like, de-radicalisation programme in the UK. Um, it's been controversial for a long time. Indeed, it's subject to review at the moment. And uh, one of the issues is uh, look, Muslim communities have always have felt that it's targeted them unfairly. It's incredibly unfocused on. I mean, clearly there is a legitimate worry and concern about Islamist terrorism. But the, the, the way Prevent works is it encourages um, friends, family, schools, you know, other institutional settings to, to report an individual if they feel that they are exhibiting some kind of worrying, perhaps proto-terror ideology. So there's a system of, encourages a system of reporting. Some feel that's a sort of a system of kind of monitoring and surveillance. You know, some worry that already is bringing people a bit towards the criminal justice system. Although Prevent is all about, is supposed to not be part of the criminal justice system and is actually, you know, a voluntary program to try and get people to think and, you know, understand things differently. Channel, and this is the interesting development in the case of Ali Harvey. Ali, he, he about five to seven years ago, he, there was a referral to Prevent, uh, uh, but there was also a referral up to Channel, which is where sort of a tailored plan to help with de-radicalisation, um, there's no reason to believe his, con- you know, his his involvement with that was anything other than sincere at the time, and the procedures are followed correctly. But it will raise some questions. Whatever the motive was, and that will obviously have to be determined by the courts. It's been the second killing of an MP in five years, and that's on top of you know non-fatal attacks, including the the murder of an MP's uh, assistant. Uh, the attempted murder of Stephen Timms, who was attacked again in his constituency surgery. I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say that that MPs receive thousands of death threats um, over the course of their careers. And many are understandably pretty worried. How does the safety of MPs today compare with, say, 50 years ago? Is it worse? Are we just hearing more about it? Are there different circumstances, contexts? What's what's the situation like today in, in, in comparison? I, I think there are certainly different circumstances. And I think there has been, over the last 30 odd years, there's been a, a sort of terrorism threat to MPs. But that that's evolved in a very different kind. So, you know, from in, in the 1980s, there was a quite, you know, a number of MPs were were killed by Irish Republican terrorists, principally the IRA, but you know, the most notable of which was the uh, the car bomb that killed Erin Eve in 1979, uh, Conservative MP, extraordinary brazen attack actually happened. The bomb blew up as his, he was driving his car out of the House of Commons, out through an underground car park, and unthinkable today, I think, on the precinct pretty much of the Palace of Westminster. That was not done by the IRA, but by the more socialistic INLA, but but nevertheless, and into the 1990, Ian Gow, an ally of Margaret Thatcher, was killed also in a car bomb outside his home things have changed and evolved terrorism has changed and evolved but but the tragic and appalling attack on sir david amos was this has some similarities with the tragic attack on joe cox sort of five and a half years ago in the run-up to the, the brexit referendum you know they both happen in and around a constituency surgery we obviously know a lot about about the joe cox attacker a loner you know, far right uh, we can obviously say a lot less and know a lot less about what happened in David Amos's case, but there are some some tragic similarities. Um, the question really is whether there's you know whether this is going to recur or whether sort of two two and five and a half years feels like a lot, but you know is this something that could even happen again? And there was you know there has been reviews, there has been 
you know, there was supposed to be you know a big overhaul in the wake of Joe Cox's murder five years ago, right? And and you know why hasn't that worked? You know it's right to say, isn't it, that MPs are in a position of unique vulnerability in their surgeries because they're this kind of unique way of connecting with the public, advertising where mm-hmm. you're gonna you know exactly where you're gonna be. That's that's something that's you know quite unthinkable at least currently in, in systems like the United States. But what is in place to protect them? Pretty much. Quite a few measures were taken after the tragic death of Joe Cox, but they were also to some extent voluntary. So MPs are given the choice, for example, whether to install panic buttons in their constituency surgery and at home. A lot do, but not all do. They were told to sort of just raise their you know, security level. A lot of MPs operate on an appointment only basis and choose a secure environment. But, you know, not everyone does the exact same thing. And I think what's really important here is that if there is a theme through all the recent tragedies and wretched attacks, it is that there's a particular point of vulnerability around that traditional Friday constituency surgery. It's such an important part of our democracy where people can go and connect to meet with their local MP. But you've seen... You know, again and again, the the dreadful attack on Lord Jones and his where his and his constituency worker who was who was killed that happened at a constituency surgery. You mentioned the attack on Stephen Timms again that happened at his constituency surgery in East London. Um, I'm not sure everyone would agree, but for me, I think it's time to start having a couple of policemen. You know, you know, yellow hivers policemen or police women outside of surgery with a wand so they can sort of metal detect as people come in because the reality is if an attack is going to take place it will be with a knife or some other kind of some some other metallic weapon is it something that is the fear of it happening as well as the actual crimes against MPs I mean there have been you know the parliamentary committee found that the level of abuse faced by elected representatives was now so great that it's undermining their engagement with constituents, how they express themselves on social media, how they carry out their democratic duties. I mean, this is all kind of a bit of a wider discussion than, you know, perhaps the the specifics of the incident where David Amos was killed and the motives for, for that killing. But MPs have wanted to talk about the degradation of public debate because that's something that frightens them. The threats they get frighten them. Um, and they've been frightened by Sir David Amos's killing. And so the two kind of get talked about together, even if, you know, you can criticise them being conflated. Do you think it is that is kind of wearing away the fabric of, of the democratic system here? I, I think you asked, you posed the question well. Uh, we all feel this instinctively, something to do with the sort of you know, rise and prevalence of social media, that, that uh, something to do with the intensity of some of the political debates we've had very much about identity politics, a Scottish referendum, and perhaps above all the Brexit you know, the Brexit referendum and the long hangover in the, um, you know, in the hung parliament, that the public debate has become sort of more toxic, it's more coarsened, it's, it's easy to abuse people online, it's easier to abuse people electronically, anonymously, etc. Now, we have to be a little bit careful, you, you know, what we'll see what the facts are of Sir David's case and you know, uh, whether anonymous abuse was in any sense part of it. But nevertheless, I think it is reasonable to have some kind of debate about, you know, how could public life be less toxic, be coarse and less. I, I think what is hard is to know exactly what you might do or how you might change that. We all, you know, we all feel there's a strong feeling that this is a kind of problem, but I'm not sure everyone could agree on how to deal with it, although you feel like something needs to change. And there's been a lot of debate around that in in Parliament. Um, Mark Francois, one of the the MPs who was closest to Sir David Amos, 
and also himself, you know, it probably should be said, someone who has used in the past, you know, fairly lively language about colleagues, especially during the the Brexit debate. But he proposed uh, what he called a David's Law, which would be a a massive toughening up of the forthcoming, and it's been forthcoming for many years, online harms bill, doing things like you say, like ending anonymity. Um, As much as you, you can see why MPs are kind of drawn towards it, you know, some arguments say they have to look at their own language too, isn't there? And also that it probably wouldn't prevent attacks like this. I think part of it is, yes, there does need to be some restraint on behaviour by MPs and politicians. And I think, uh, yeah, the House of Commons was at its best this week paying tributes to Sir David. But, you know, the atmosphere at PMQs, and that is the thing that people watch and engage with at Westminster. You know, it's an intense Yabu culture. And I've seen, you know, perfectly mature and reasonable and thoughtful MPs engaging in incredible sledging during Prime Minister's questions. So, Politicians of all kinds sort of can be a danger going over the top. You know, there was a big row, of course, when Angie Rayner used the word scum, you know, describe some of her political opponents. Um, that doesn't look like a very sort of well-judged remark now, even though she sought to defend it at the time. You, you know, many other people have done that too. And I think certainly there was a point in the Brexit debate where it got incredibly, where the debate got incredibly coarse, a lot of language around traitors, which sort of all sorts of terrible ideas flow from it. I remember one particularly bad session in the Commons with Boris Johnson actually uh, soon after he became Prime Minister in which he was just sort of batting off the concerns of MPs saying that the language of debate is too hysterical. I think there were concerns raised by Paula Sheriff, a former Labour MP, for example, in that in that debate. I'd say Johnson has stepped back quite a bit actually, I think, in the way he, he debates in public and I think that, that change in tone has helped a little. But yeah, I think parliamentarians need to consider these things carefully. You know, stepping back five percent can make a difference, I think. Dan Saver, thanks ever so much for joining me today. Thank you. After the break, Rupert Huck tells us why she won't give up meeting constituents face to face, despite the risks. We'll be right back. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. As the news about the killing of David Amos broke last Friday, many MPs were themselves on their way to or already at their constituency surgeries. And it was a chilling reminder about the risks of being a public figure and one who has to advertise their whereabouts so people can meet them. Earlier in the week, The Guardian's political correspondent, Aubrey Allegretti, sat down with Labour MP for Ealing Central and Acton, Rupa Huck, to talk about her experiences as an MP. They met at the Palace of Westminster the day after she gave a personal tribute to Amos in the Commons. 
When Joe Cox was taken from us, we all said that we should live by the dicta of more in common. I feel in life we should be all a bit more like David. And that means being less cross and more cross-party. Thank you. Yeah. Aubrey started off by asking Rupert why she wanted to go into politics in the first place. I just think it's the best job in the world to represent your home community in the mother of parliaments. I mean, for me to see Big Ben every day is an enormous privilege and an honor. Um, And at the same time, you can sort out stuff for your community and you can make it a better community for everyone. So looking back to your first constituency surgery, do you remember the kind of feelings you had, the kind of cases you were coming up against? What was that kind of like? I have done a constituency surgery pretty much every week since uh, 2015. The most uh, standard type of things are housing. We have a five-figure waiting list in Ealing for people wanting to be rehoused in the borough. Social security benefits, those kind of things. As MPs, there's nothing we don't do. And then, obviously, the whole point of these constituency surgeries is quite a unique thing in this country. So what kind of reactions do you get when, when people come in and you're trying to help them? Are they sort of grateful? Are they... Are they tearful? What are they looking to you for when they come in? People will come and see you who'll be, by definition, frustrated, angry, upset at the end of their tether. So why else are they seeing an MP? So, yeah, sometimes you get these people who just want to talk and to sound off. And as you say, it's a very British feature of our democracy because colleagues from overseas are always astounded how accessible we are. But in the light of what's happened, some of these things maybe need a bit of reassessment. Back in 2015, did you have any sort of concerns about your safety either at these surgeries or just because you had got this position now as a Member of Parliament? In 2015, mine were genuinely open-door surgeries. I don't think I had much of social media then, but if anyone phoned up, and we do get a lot of people phoning up, the phone ringing off the hook, uh, they were told where it would be. Uh, Since actually the murder of Joe Cox... It changed to booked appointments, so they have to give an address and an indication of what the problem is. And even if I'm taking the calls, I always say, can you give us, can you email over as much information as possible, home office reference numbers, whatever. We can get cracking on it now. It might even be resolved by Friday. When you were elected, obviously, you hadn't been long in the job before Joe Cox, the former MP for Batley and Spend, was was murdered. Do you remember how you felt about that when you heard the news? Yeah, no, I was just stunned. I was in Parliament when the initial news broke. I remember saying to Alison McGovern, can that be true? Everyone was in shock. And then I think by the end of it, everyone on our 2015 intake WhatsApp group was saying, please, may it not be true. Please, I hope she pulls through. And then someone said, she's gone. And we have just all shocked and traumatised suddenly we're talking in the past tense about someone who was there and she had actually had a party for the whole 2015 intake I think just the night before they were going to make it an annual thing oh it was really fun on her boat where she lived um yeah no it was very affecting how did you react then to the the news that a second MP had been killed that you were quite close to the Sir David Abis one as well was very difficult to process because I'd been with him 48, less than 48 hours before it happened. Um, so I was on a trip where he was delegation leader over that weekend and days either side of it. 
that Wednesday night, last thing I saw was him at the baggage reclaim, checking that my bag was reunited with me after everyone else had gone and mine was still on the centrifuge because I'd looked the wrong way or something when it came the first time. You know, just really decent man. Um, You know, he'd even spoken to my teenage son because I did a video call in the week with him and he was next to me. So he joined in. I said, yeah, you talk to him. He's really naughty, my boy. And he, you know, they had a good old chat. And the last thing he said at the baggage reclaim was, you know, look after that boy of yours. You know, don't give him hassle. He's a good lad. So that, I think, just because I'd seen him so recently, just the way it happened, that was really difficult to process. And I had to go and do my surgery. I think we got the news at about half three or something. And four o'clock is my surgery time. That was the time to get your skates on and go across. But we did text the local police. So that was a a, a post-Jocox precaution. When you're doing a surgery, let the police know. And it must have obviously been very difficult because the the parallel between Joe and David was that they were killed at these constituency surgeries. And then you're talking about you were just heading off for yours. So that must have been kind of quite odd. But you decided that it was best to go ahead. And there's obviously been a discussion now about whether surgeries should go ahead in the same way. Yeah, I mean, actually, I did a column for your paper after Joe that was called I'm Carrying On because that's what my friend would have wanted me to do. I mean, yeah, it'd be good to have some guidance from the centre, but a general prohibition. And again, David Amos, I don't know what he would have made of all of this. Um, So I think you have to strike a balance. You can continue seeing your public but you have to take sensible precautions. So maybe there's things you could build into it. Maybe those lists of who's coming could be sent somewhere where they check if someone is on some sort of watch list. Yeah, there's stuff probably that could be inbuilt. Are there sort of particular things you'd like to see happen? Or if it's up to each MP, are there sort of particular ways you're going to change or make sure you carry on your behaviour to sort of make sure that that access to constituents doesn't change? Uh, I mean, people talk a lot about uh, MP security at home. In this building, you know, there's zillions of cameras and lots of armed police everywhere. On my first day, the uh, tour of the building I got that I replicate for constituents was by a copper. And he did say, if anyone lays a finger on you, I can get 10 machine guns pointed at them. If you go over there, which is outside the perimeter of the parliamentary state, none of it applies. So... I think maybe MPs need to be taken a bit more seriously because they are seen as always on the take, snout in the trough. I think they're down there with used car salesmen in the trustworthy stakes of professions. People have gone on a lot about online and offline abuse. Online, there's a constant hum of it every day on my timeline. I just, you know, think that's life, that's an occupational hazard, that's part of the territory. But then if these people were to follow through, so I mean, I think we do need to be taken seriously. And even we all live amongst our constituents and our address is on the ballot paper. And I I just don't know if I'll do that next time. My thanks to Rupa Huck MP for telling Aubrey Allegretti her story. That's all from us this week. Before I go, I wanted to ask you to do us a little favour. We want to know more about what you like about the show and what kinds of things you'd like to hear more of. So the team has put together a survey for you to take if you have a couple of minutes to spare. So head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcast hyphen survey. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. 
Make sure to also listen to Politics Weekly Extra on Friday as Joni Grieve and Oliver Millman look at why one Democrat senator could thwart Joe Biden's entire climate change plan before the president even sets foot in Glasgow for the COP26 climate summit. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Dan Saba, Aubrey Allegretti and Rupa Huck. The producer this week was Yolin Gafan and I'm Jessica Elgott. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.